0: They were the shots heard round Kelly, Kentucky, on the night of August 21, 1955, when Billy Ray Taylor and Lucky Sutton picked up a pair of rifles and began shooting at a strange being that was approaching the homestead of Miss Glennie Lankford. An hour earlier, Billy Ray had gone to fetch some water from a well out back when he witnessed a silvery object spewing exhaust that were, quote, all colors of the rainbow. Nearly everyone had laughed it off, and an hour later, the family dog started to bark incessantly at the back door. A small humanoid creature started to approach them that seemed to glow. They were approximately 3 feet tall and had talons on their hands. The glow seemed to come from their eyes, which cast yellowish-colored light in front of them. Their body shimmered as if they were made of metal, and it held their hands up in a gesture of surrender. The token of peace did not appeal to Billy Ray, nor Lucky, when they opened fire. In response, the being did a flip and scrambled into the darkness. The family's harrowing ordeal, in which they claimed to fend off a number of these beings, made the national news, and the press dubbed them the, quote, Little Green Men. The Sutton family were not the first to shoot at otherworldly beings or objects, According to Francis P. Wall, his entire company opened fire on a UFO during the Korean War, which had dire consequences for the soldiers. In May of 1951, Wall's company was stationed near Chorwon and were planning on shelling an entire village when a strange glowing object appeared over the town. In Wall's own words, it was like, quote, a jack-o'-lantern wafting down across the mountain, end quote. The craft moved over to the town as artillery started to burst all around it. In fact, it would move directly in the middle of the fire and hover there, absorbing it all through a brilliant orange glow. In the next moment, the object changed colors to a blue-green and shot a pulsating light at the soldiers who decided to make the UFO their new target. Like a searchlight... The beam found the soldiers as the metallic pings of their shots were firing off the hull. Wall recalled to investigator John P. Timmerman of the Center for UFO Studies that his skin began to tingle and burn when the beam fell upon him. The company quickly fled into bunkers before witnessing the object depart quickly upward. The men were evacuated three days later through makeshift roads to haul away those who were too weak to walk on their own it was revealed that the majority of the soldiers had dysentery and an abnormally high white blood cell count. Many soldiers would go on to report UFO activity during the Korean War to historians who blamed most of it on experimental Soviet technology. In J. Allen Hynek's first book, The UFO Experience, the famed ufologist would write about a close encounter of the third kind case that is so mysterious only two paragraphs were ever written about it. This case had four witnesses, all family men holding responsible positions. Two engaged in work requiring military clearances, and their jobs would be in severe jeopardy were their anonymity violated. For the record, this reported event took place in North Dakota in November 1961, in rain and sleet late at night. The four men observed the landing of a lighted craft in a completely open and deserted field, and thinking that an aircraft was in serious trouble, stopped by the roadside, hopped the fence, and hurried toward what they judged to be the plane. Their surprise was understandably great when they discovered humanoids around the craft, one of which boldly waved them off in a threatening manner. One of the men fired a shot at the humanoid, which fell as if hurt. The craft soon took off, and the men fled. The next day, although they reportedly had told no one of their bizarre experience, it was reported to me that one of the men was called out of work and led into the presence of men he had never seen before. They asked to be taken to his home, where they examined the clothing he had worn the night before, especially his boots, and left without any further word. To the best of my knowledge, none of the men involved heard further about the incident. There, the mystery rests. Today's story begins with a number of rifle shots aimed at a strange, small, mysterious object, and it was these shots that led to a significant flap during the winter of 1972 in South Africa. My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is the Our Strange Skies podcast. South Africa had been the site of a sporadic number of UFO events and incidents leading up to the flap of 1972. Elizabeth Clare had made a name for herself around the world as a contactee, claiming to have met a tall, long, blonde-haired man named Akon. In September of 1965, two constables had witnessed a strange disc-like object lift up from the road in a, quote, sea of flame near Silverton. What happened in South Africa in 1972 was entirely different. It started on the morning of June 26, 1972, 14 kilometers, or 8.5 miles, from Fort Victoria. Bernardus Benny Smith's farm, Brayside Farm, was remote. The 40-year-old plumber had purchased it in 1971 and was spending time there on a short vacation in late June. The day was bright and sunny, the weather warm, as it usually was. Smith sent one of his employees, Beware de Klerk, to check on a dam. At roughly 8 a.m., the man was startled by puffs of smoke that were rising from the bush. De Klerk was in the process of making a fire himself when he caught the sight and scent of it. Believing this to be a sign of trespassers, he pushed forward and called out, Who was making fire on Boss Benny's farm? Just then, a strange, shiny object emerged and ascended above the trees where it bobbed up and down. Declerc didn't linger long, returning to the farmhouse as quickly as he could. Smith was ushered to the scene where the object was still there. The, quote, ugly thing, as Declerc referred to it, was oval-shaped. It glowed red and turned to bright green and yellow. At the top edge of the right-hand side... A white glow, distinct from the main colors of the craft, was visible, and it was relatively small. Those that witnessed it claimed it to be anywhere from .75 meters, or 2.5 feet tall, to 3 meters, or 10 feet tall. Smith ordered the clerk to remain there as he ran back to grab his three hundred three rifle, and when he returned to the spot, it was still there under partial cover, hovering 5.5 meters, or 18 feet, in the air behind some trees. The object made Smith so uneasy that he ran back to the farmhouse and phoned the police. Within the hour, Warrant Officer Van Rensburg and Sergeant Kitching arrived on the scene. Kitching described the scene, quote, It was hovering lengthwise, just partially hidden behind some bushy trees. The color of the object was a gunmetal blue-black. And after we watched it for a while, it started to glow a coal red all over. The same as when Mr. Smith saw it early on. Then we noticed a vivid, bright star-like light to one side of the object. This was flashing at intervals. It was Kitching's assertion that this egg-shaped object was under some kind of intelligent control. Smith ordered his employees into the bush to flush it out, but were unsuccessful. He then set out himself with a handkerchief tied to a long stick so that he could be guided by the police. This, too, was unsuccessful. Feeling like he had no options left, Smith opened fire from 250 meters or 820 feet away. Fifteen rounds were fired in total as they advanced on the object. The seventh or eighth bullet struck the hull of the object, producing a dull thudding sound, which caused it to rock from side to side. Sergeant Kitching engaged the object with Smith's rifle as well, which seemed to move away, climbing rapidly into the trees. From 10 meters or 32 feet away, Smith was able to hit the star like device in the upper right hand corner of the object, which seemed to prevent it from changing colors after that. It then hummed and retreated further. Smith later claimed to hear the same hum over his house on a later date, though no object was seen. The police observed the object for about an hour before returning to the station, and soon after, it departed. The police later returned to the site of the incident and found three sets of impressions in the oddly damp clay. These small impressions were approximately 6.35 centimeters, or two and a half inches, in diameter. And according to investigator Yvonne Clark, It gives the impression that legs from the object may have spiraled out of it and stopped just as the pads touched the ground. The clay print was turned slightly in a clockwise direction, with a portion of the mark, just to one side of the middle of the print, not flattened at all. Thus it left the same kind of impression as the hoof of a cow or a sheep might leave, flattened down at the sides and hollow in the middle. Two days later, the police descended on the farm to conduct a full-scale investigation. They took photographs, collected soil samples, took plaster casts of the strange markings, and they tested for fuel and oil on the nearby vegetation. The investigation was led by Brigadier A. Voslo, Division Commander of the Eastern Cape Police Force. The next day, he reported that the marks were not evenly spaced, which in his mind meant that it was a hoax. But it was Warrant Officer Van Rensburg who suggested that the marks may have been created by the craft as it descended into the bush multiple times. He theorized that the craft may have had landing gear and that it used it to touch down on the clay surface. As the press coverage of this incident continued, additional experts came forward to lend their opinions. According to Miss Verschue of Fort Beaufort, who had examined the prints, quote, Thin but clear streaks running from one imprint to another look like pads and seem to indicate a slight sideways sliding movement. At the top, two almost round marks resembling the, quote, toes in an elephant's imprint suggest pressure was greatest at that point. Opposite the toe marks, there is a raised area, end quote. According to C.S. Kingsley, a geologist and professor at Fort Hare University, The marks had to have been made by something metallic. The partial streaks in the imprint indicated that they had been made by a hard surface. The soil samples were sent to a lab in Pretoria, but other than a difference of smell, no noticeable difference was observed. Before long, all of South Africa was caught up in a UFO fever, and everyone had an opinion. Fort Beaufort's mayor, Peter Labachon, proclaimed that if Benny Smith had had the right gun, they would have brought the object down, no problem. In the June 29th edition of the Johannesburg Star, Brigadier Voslo changed his tune. Though he didn't believe the object to be supernatural, he did say that it was most likely a man-made device controlled remotely. Aside from the Star, stories were run in the Cape Times, the Argus, and the Eastern Province Herald. The Natal Mercury ran the headline, quote, Benny Blast Bashful Fireball. This flap was unique for a number of reasons, including how contained it was. There were no reports from any of South Africa's neighbors, such as Rhodesia, which would later become Zimbabwe. In 1972, the Republic of South Africa was divided into four provinces, Cape, Orange Free State, Transvaal, and Natal. The country was also in the middle of apartheid, which pushed many native black residents onto small confined pieces of land known as bantustans. The confining nature of this flap draws comparisons to the 1954 French UFO flap, in which a number of the country's residents reported seeing saucer-like objects and humanoids clad in, quote, diving suits. Even the 1989 Belgian UFO flap and the Hudson Valley wave were relatively contained to their own territories. The 1972 South African wave also draws comparisons to the 1947 flap in the U.S. The press was quick to dub these objects flying saucers like they did in the United States. Granted, they looked nothing like saucers at all. The press was in a furor printing any story it could get its hands on. In both cases, this most likely contributed to additional sightings by witnesses, some of which were probably misidentifications, as is the case with most flaps. In regards to the 1954 French UFO flap, which was covered in episode 26, there were UFO reports from other countries as well, like Italy, where a mass sighting had occurred over a football stadium. In August of that same year, There was a sighting in the skies over Madagascar. At around 5 p.m. on August 15, 1954, in the city of Tanariv, Edmund Champanog was talking with a friend on the Avenue of Liberation, the city's largest street, when he spotted a green fireball descending toward the ground. Edmund quickly drew everyone's attention to it. He described this green fireball as resembling a plasma lens covering a disc-shaped craft that was roughly the size of a Douglas DC-4 plane. From behind it, a trail of blue flame followed, and yet the object was silent. It also doused all the city lights in its wake. The object traveled over a nearby animal park, causing all the livestock to howl like crazy. The craft flew over the city multiple times, and each time it did, the lights would go out and the animals would grow fearfully excited. Some of them pushed through their pens, risking death by running into a nearby marsh. With each pass, more of the city's residents were alerted to the presence of the UFO above it. The object eventually flew off, and an investigation was launched by Chompanog himself, though he could find no explanation for what had flown over the city. It's estimated that there were as many as 200,000 witnesses to this case, though there's no real official number to that. So now back to the events of 1972. Between June 26th and July 4th, South Africa was fixated on the UFO event that took place on Brayside Farm. And just like other countries experiencing the phenomenon for the first time, opinions just flooded the newspapers. The object had been dismissed by some and upheld by others. The former director of the Johannesburg Planetarium, Arthur Blesky, implored people not to shoot at UFOs, fearing retaliations through some advanced weaponry. He went on to verbally ponder why aliens would choo choo choo's Fort Beaufort as a place to visit. Donnie Bester, chief deputy commissioner of the South African police, believed there was a simple explanation though failed to offer up nothing. To quote Charles Bowen's article, Donnie Bester performed a tricky, sidestepping come double shuffle maneuver on June 30th. If you ask me, that statement didn't age very well at all. But when questioned further, Bester simply stated, it's best not to talk about it at all. Let's just sweep it under the carpet. Like the Kenneth Arnold sighting, the Fort Beaufort incident touched off a wave of UFO sightings that would extend through the end of July. As we talked about on our Gulf Breeze series with Sam and Jason from the Not Alone podcast, the press coverage encouraged people to come forward with their sightings. On July 4th, the papers ran a sighting that had taken place two days earlier, described as a, quote, unstar like saucer. Witnesses saw an object departing Brayside Farm headed in the direction of Grahamstown. Warrant Officer Van Rensburg was alerted to the sighting that night. It is said that he got out of bed, looked outside, and proclaimed, quote, In view of the official doubts cast on the first incident, it wasn't worth the bother of investigating, end quote. Now, while the group that reported this object could have seen a conventional aircraft, There was an incident on the evening of the 2nd at around 7.15 p.m. that seems to corroborate it. R.L. Brown, Eileen Meering, and Eileen's stepson Billy were visiting Argyle, which was part of the Brayside Farm. From 700 yards away, the three witnesses observed a color-changing object for about 20 minutes. A flat triangular object transitioned from yellow to blue to blinding white. It was seven feet long and had a tail on it. It turned a dark red color and moved quickly away towards Grahamstown. There was an additional eyewitness to this case, Alicia Smith, Benny's wife. She was able to catch sight of the object before it moved off. Another object was seen in the vicinity of Braceside Farm on the 3rd as well, but few details emerged about the incident. Following a town council meeting on the 3rd, the mayor, two council members, and a pair of photographers decided to invade Brayside Farm to see the object for themselves, though none appeared. From there, the activity in Fort Beaufort and around South Africa increased dramatically. In the early morning of Saturday, July 8th, Brayside Farm was rocked by two explosions. Minutes before, Benny Smith claimed to have seen a UFO, Upon examining his property, he noted that a reservoir made of brick and cement had shattered. Large chunks of concrete were thrown 20 meters away, spilling thousands of gallons of water. The Natal Mercury noted how the citizens were starting to become more concerned. The police even instructed the Smiths not to talk about what happened to the reservoir. Now, I'm not going to cover every incident from this flap, but there are patterns to discern. While reports seemed to come in at all times of day, the greatest concentration of sightings occurred between 8 and 11 p.m. and 1 and 6 a.m. Many sightings featured craft that would change colors at intervals. There were multiple witness cases, repeat witness cases, and there were crafts of all shapes and sizes, and there were even photographs taken. The earliest reports following the June 26th incident occurred on July 1st, in Cape Province. In Wellington at 7.30 a.m. that morning, Jay Fowry was awoken by his wife, who drew his attention to a, quote, bright orange thing hovering over the Wellington orphanage. Quote, I ran outside and saw this thing. It looked like the belly light of an aircraft flicking on and off. It was about the size of a coffee table. It just hovered there. Fowry observed the object for a few minutes before it moved off. Around 10:30 p.m. in Constantia, Miss B. Marand witnessed a strange white light with two tails coming off it behind a set of trees near a sports complex. She observed the object for about five minutes through the thick branches before it lifted up and fled the area, fast becoming a gold-colored star in the sky. In Johannesburg on July 6, at least a dozen witnesses reported seeing a bright orange object. G. Devine, his wife, and four friends watched as this light moved through the sky at tremendous speeds. At around the same time, which was around 9 p.m., the same object was reported throughout the province. John Hoteen viewed an object through his binoculars that was incredibly bright. He was able to discern an object that was roughly balloon-shaped. Another eyewitness, Mr. G. Kraft, claimed that the object looked like a flaming feather duster. On July 13th, at 4 a.m., Miss R. E. Michelson of Champagne Farm in Cape Province went outside to check on the weather when she saw a terrific light low in the sky near Du Toit's kloof It looked like a ball of light hugging the mountain peaks. Three hours later, she phoned her son, S. Michelson, who saw the object above the peaks as well. It was roughly 3 times larger than a star and disappeared around 8:30 a.m. Mr. Slabbert, a resident of Oudendalaras in the Orange Free State province, called up police constable J.P. Myberg on July 16th in a state of exhilaration and panic. There was a UFO above Wesselbron Road, and the pair drove out there together to see it. Two miles outside of town, they observed a disc-shaped object rotating in the sky, emitting a bright yellow light. Enveloping the yellow object was a blue light, which made it seem like the object was trying to blend in with the stars. As the two men looked up, the object descended rapidly, like a response to being seen. It continued to descend and ascend again, like an elevator, glowing bright red each time for about 15 minutes before it shot off in the direction of welcome. Myberg radioed dispatch for permission to fire upon the object, but was denied. Soon after departing, Myberg radioed into dispatch details of the craft, which made the rounds to a number of other police stations. The next person to see it was Senior Traffic Officer H.F. Katsia, near Kroonstad. To him, it resembled a zeppelin with blotches of light all over it that may have looked like windows. According to Divisional Commander Brigadier G.C. Bester, six police officers saw the object that night. In Durban, within the province of Natal, A.G. Hill saw objects on successive days. The unusual light first made its appearance over the sea at 6 a.m. on July 3rd, Through his bedroom window, the object resembled a bone with a wedge-shaped thing about a third of the way down. The pulsating object looked like a cluster of 100 bright stars reflecting off the water. Hill assumed it to be a meteor breaking up over the ocean, but was startled when the object returned the next morning. The lights weren't as playful, but the overall shape was the same. This time, it looked as if pieces of it were falling away into the water. Over the skies of Natal, the UFOs took an interest in the planes that flew there. During the weekend of July 9th, Captain Chester Chandler and the crew of a Boeing 727 reported a quote, bright, swiftly moving object close to the plane as it was making preparations to land. Ground control radioed back and assured the crew that it was not from any known aircraft in the area at the time. The object paced the plane for a while before it veered off. This was not the only object that Chandler had spotted that week. On July 5th, another UFO had passed the Boeing 727 on a flight to Cape Town. Strangely, it was brown in color and moved rapidly past them. In another curious case, on July 5th, Tony Inch and Joe Rust were returning to King Williamstown from Port Elizabeth at 2 in the morning when they noticed a fire in some nearby grass ahead of them. While observing the flames, they witnessed a bright red object shaped like a sailor's cap. It lifted off the ground slowly and disappeared in the direction of Stutterheim. The men drove back to the local police station to make a report. To the officers, they were visibly scared, but accompanied them back to the fire, where it was still burning. While the UFOs seen over South Africa came in all shapes and sizes, discs, eggs, balls of light, the most common reported shape was that of a banana. On July 5th, Edward Wilson of King Williamstown was driving up Gray Street at 2.50 p.m., with an African passenger when they both noticed two very bright objects. The top one was banana-shaped and seemed to be resting on a flat object. Below it was a triangular-shaped craft. They were visible for a short time before disappearing near the Piri Mountains. Earlier that day, near the Fish River Bridge in Cape Province, railway truck driver Mitchell Strewig and his assistant we were driving down Fish River Pass on the Port Elizabeth East London National Road when they noticed a, quote, half moon shaped object that was luminous and red in color. It appeared to have irregular patterns on it. They viewed the object for about four minutes before it disappeared behind some mountains. The cabin of their truck instantly became cold, which was unusual given the constant heat. And this is a feature that will come up in the Patreon bonus episode. So uh, if you are not a patron, go subscribe to that and you'll learn more about that in another case. Two days later, on July 7th, a UFO again appeared above Port Elizabeth. This time, one of the witnesses, Jeffrey Allen, was able to capture the object on camera. It was a bright one, moving fast. Then two objects appeared, one a tennis ball-sized Quote, "Scout ship, the other a half-moon-shaped "mothership" with a vertical line underneath it. At infrequent intervals, the object changed colors from red, white, and green. By 8:45 pm, the objects had all disappeared. In one of the last reported sightings of the 1972 South African wave, two additional photographs were taken, capturing unusual blobs of light. On Sunday morning, July 23, 1972, Chief superintendent of Secchord's chemical laboratory, a man named Eridanio DiMarco, clocked out. It was around 4 a.m. in Umcomas, a town located in Natal. Driving home, he noticed a very bright light moving from north to south. It was in an odd pattern, this left-to-right movement. Quickly pulling into his driveway... He ran inside to grab his camera. He pointed it up to the cloudy sky and took a pair of photographs. Before long, the quote, light tubes had become pinpricks of light disappearing among the stars. He developed the photos himself and kept them hidden, fearing for ridicule. The photos depict light-streaked objects, some of which are large. In one, it almost looks like the object has landing gear on it. Following the publication of the Umkamas photos, sightings began to die down in South Africa. However, the specters paid one final visit to Natal province. They called them giants, and in the Natal Mercury of August 22, the story of Doris Muthwa, a young mother of five and her daughter Joyce, age 12, was printed. The two headed out early that morning at approximately 4.30 a.m. to gather water from a nearby river. Doris looked up and saw a man in a white suit. At first, she thought the individual was smoking a cigarette, as smoke was emanating from the man's face. The smoke would go on to become a big fire. Pink and blue light began to emanate from the man's chest. He stood approximately 3 to 5 meters tall, or at least 11 feet tall. He looked to be emitting some kind of electricity, too. And before long, he shot up into the sky and disappeared. This strange figure was seen a couple more times on the weekend of the 19th and 20th. Thelma Hansen saw the fire coming from their eyes. Their head was square, like a machine. If I could paint you a picture right now, and I'm going to do my best, it looks like... The Blanket from the Brave Little Toaster movies. I'm going to post pictures of this on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, yeah, you should definitely take a look at this. I swear to God, it looks exactly like that blanket from the Brave Little Toaster movies. They claimed that it was staring at them from a nearby fence. All of the witnesses were frightened by this being. Except for one. Elias Kosa saw the being on Wednesday, August 16th, 1972. When he was walking home, this being faced him, though he could not see its face. He saw small gouts of flame burning at the giant's feet. Instead of running in fear, Elias invited the being in for a beer. The being promptly took off, spewing large gouts of smoke and flame in the process. This episode of the Our Strange Skies podcast was written and produced by me. Special thanks to Rich Haddam for his great advice on approaching this episode. Going forward, there's going to be a slight format change to the episodes. Uh, Starting with the next one, I'll be bringing on guest co-hosts. And uh, while I enjoy doing this format, it's just very time consuming. It takes me a long time to uh, write these episodes, record it, edit it, and all that stuff. Bringing in a co-host makes the writing process much easier. Um, It also brings in a different perspective, uh, as opposed to mine. So, um, yeah, the next episode is going to be on the aerial school landing, and Rich is going to be joining me for that. If you want to support the show, please leave a rating and review on your favorite podcasting app of choice. I have relaunched the Patreon, so if you're interested, head on over to patreon.com slash yourufoguy for more info about that. Patrons will be treated to early releases of episodes as well as bonus episodes that I'm calling The Hum and the Silence. And I'll be posting at least one bonus episode a month over there. So, um, and, and I'm going to try to include some interviews here and there. So if that interests you, head on over to patreon.com slash yourufoguy. I have a couple of other projects that I'm a part of as well. They are TTRPG related. One is a DD and d podcast that I run called Rolling Through the Realms. It's based in the Faerun setting and uh, my players are currently in uh, Icewind Dale contending with Oral the Frostmaiden. The other project uh, just wrapped on its first season actually. It's called The Order of Podcasters. We stream our games over at twitch.tv TechnoFunkBoy. And we also release them in podcast form as well. So please go check them out. On order of podcasters, I play a George Norrie-like character named Myron Dripchin. Greatest name ever. So uh, uh, if that interests you, go check those out. Um, we're going to be starting up uh, next year. So you've got some time to catch up on old episodes if you are interested. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO for the intro and outro of this program. Additional music is by Blue Dot Sessions, and our logo was designed by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up. Because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or over the skies of South Africa. In gray we trust.